but we use the Bible a lot here at White Oak Baptist Church, and we encourage you uh, to use it along with us. Now, I believe we're going to be in the book of Esther the entire time this morning. And so once you've found uh, the book of Esther, uh, you'll be able to keep up and, and stay with us there. Esther chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 5 and read down through verse number 9. Once you've found that, if you're able to, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Esther chapter 2, we'll begin together reading in verse 5, and then we'll read every other verse together down through verse number 9. Let's read together. Begin in verse 5. Ready? Here we go. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew. Let's read together. Verse 5. Ready? Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and uh, his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification, which such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to be given her out of the king's house, and he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. And we'll make sense of this passage here in a few minutes. We've been looking at this series of sermons on Sunday mornings, Stand with Conviction. This is the last sermon in that series. We're going to take everything we've talked about so far, and we're going to put it all together in a person. We're going to show how Esther stood with conviction. So this morning we'll look at Queen Esther and we'll talk about how she stood with conviction. Let's pray. Lord, help us today as we look at um, just an enjoyable story. Lord, a story that is filled with action and drama and romance. And uh, Lord, a story that is filled with uh, a woman who cared much about who she was and you. And Lord, when push came to shove, she took a stand for herself and her people. Lord, help us to learn from her life many valuable lessons and apply them. Give us the courage we need in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as sin and Satan get a firmer grip on our culture, the need to take a stand for what is right has never been more vital. We have opened 2021 looking at the importance of taking a stand for what's right and taking a stand with conviction. And to date, we have looked at these four sermon titles over the last month, Our Principles, Our Passion, Our Prudence, and Our Persecution. We have looked at each of these topics individually, but what about all together? Is there a person in the Bible that embodied all these attributes? Someone who stood with conviction and made a difference as a result? Queen Esther is one of these people. She took a stand for what was right in the face of incredible wickedness. This morning we're going to look at her story. 
I'd like to share some introductory thoughts about the book of Esther here. First of all, this book is a book about the providence of God. Um, It is the only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned anywhere. You cannot find the name of God anywhere in the book. However, um, God is all over this book working in the background. In my reading and studying of the book for preparation for this message, it became obvious to me that the author was working hard to leave God's name out of the book. It was done intentionally. Now, no doubt, the book is inspired by God and written by God through the hand of a man, but God intentionally left his name out of this book. But there is no question as you read this book that God is working in the background, uh, heartily working in the background to bring the events about. Um, God worked through Esther to save his people, the Israelites, alive. God did the work. God did the work. Esther was the one who was willing to take the stand. Now, uh, Mordecai, her uncle, makes it clear, we'll see later on in the story here, that Esther, if you don't take the stand, and you're not the one who saves the country, the country will be saved. God will just use someone else. God did the work, but it was Esther who took the stand so God could do the work. Likewise, listen, God is not going to let the church be destroyed. God's not going to let the church uh, be eradicated. God needs men and women to take a stand. And if you don't take the stand, he'll find someone else to take the stand. But all the same, God does the work. He is looking for men and women who are willing to take a stand. Now, let me set the stage for you briefly when it comes to where we're at in the story here, okay? So the Israelites had been taken captive. Uh, The two southern tribes of Judah had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And after some time in Babylonian captivity, um, Persia, the Persian Empire, took over and Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus, uh, became the ruler of the known civilized world, including the Israelites. And in fact, the kingdom of Persia was so vast and so large that the book of Esther tells us that it stretched from Ethiopia to India, all the way to India, covering 147 provinces, 147 provinces. Ahasuerus was a powerful man, and the Persian Empire is still known today as one of the greatest empires of all time, and Israel was captive to the Persians. Now, in chapter 1 of the book, King Ahasuerus throws a huge Party And he has dignitaries in and he has people in from all sorts of places. And King Ahasuerus is making a big deal about his wealth and his power and his fame. And in the process of this party, he gets slammed drunk. And he is as drunk as could be. And in his drunkenness, he orders to have Queen Vashti, his queen, to be brought in. And he wants to show off his wife, uh, to uh, all of the dignitaries and all of the people that are at this party. Now, we don't know to what degree he wanted to show off his wife. We don't know if he wanted her to just come in and, you know, a modest apparel and show off her beauty, or if he was looking for something more uh, seductual or uh, provocative, uh, seductive or provocative. We don't know that, but whatever the case, Vashti refused to be involved, and Vashti slapped the king's hand away and said, no, I will not come to your party. I will not do what you're asking. And she put up a wall and said, I absolutely refuse to go along with what you're doing. And boy, this really made the king look bad. The king is the most powerful man 
in the world. This king, Ahasuerus, was the most powerful man in the world. And his wife, his wife told him no publicly. And so he could not, he would not allow her to continue to be the king. And so he had her removed and they began to look for a new queen uh, to take Vashti's place. And so the search began. The search began and King Ahasuerus ordered to have all of the beautiful virgins of his kingdom to be gathered together and prepared to be presented before him as the new queen. Now, uh, I understand the Me Too culture we live in today. I get all that. Uh, now, the book of Esther is not justifying any of this behavior. Please understand that Ahasuerus was a lost, unsaved man who ruled a kingdom many, many years ago in a pagan environment. And so as I present these facts, I'm not endorsing any of the behavior. I'm just simply laying out history as to what happened. Virgin girls were gathered together from all over the kingdom, and they were brought in to a house to be prepared in order to be presented before Ahasuerus. He would spend one night with each young lady, and then he would pick from those young ladies a woman to be his wife. Now, there were two houses for these women. There was the house of virgins, and then after they spent a night with Ahasuerus, they would be moved to a different house, a house of concubines. And so, um, uh, 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 Hadassah, who was, that was her Hebrew name, um, her, her Persian name was Esther. Esther was chosen and selected and brought into the house of virgins to be prepared for a year in order to be presented to Ahasuerus as a possibility as a wife. Now, we don't know if Hadassah or Esther volunteered or if she was forced into this situation. The Bible does not tell us, but nonetheless, that's where Esther ended up, and that's uh, where we pick up the story here in Esther chapter 2. I propose that God's people must learn how to take a stand based on the conviction of what is right. They must learn how to stand in the face of what is wrong. God's people should look to the life of Esther and learn the importance of standing with prudence in the face of scornful men and women who want to destroy God's work and destroy God's Word. Let's look at four thoughts this morning as we go through the story of Queen Esther and see the importance of standing with conviction. If you have a bulletin this morning on the back of there is a fill in the blank outline. I encourage you to take notes as we go here. Notice point number one, Esther's principles. Esther's principles. We have looked at these four points and we're going to look at them in the life of Esther this morning. Notice letter A, her identity. Her identity. Esther chapter 2, verse number 5. Let's see how Esther could have identified herself. It says there, Now in Shushan, the palace, uh, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Notice here he is a Benjaminite. Notice there a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem. Notice this next phrase, with the captivity. So Mordecai and Esther are Jews and they are slaves. They were carried away with the captivity. They've been taken captive. It's, it goes on to say, which had been carried away uh, with uh, Jeconia, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. So notice the name 
Hadassah, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was, notice this next phrase, fair and beautiful. Fair and beautiful, who Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, notice that, father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Now, everyone cares deeply about something in their life. Uh, If I were to ask you, uh, how uh, do you want to be identified? What do you want to be known as or known by? Um, What would you say? For Esther, she had several options based on just these few verses. She could have emphasized the fact that she was an orphan and a slave, and she could have uh, hung her identity on victimhood. She could have said, I am a victim. I am a slave. I'm not in my own land. And on top of that, my mom and dad died and I'm being raised by my uncle. I don't have a mom in my life to show me how to be a woman. And here I am growing up in a, a broken home situation. Here I am growing up as a slave. And um, Esther could have totally played the I am a victim card as so many people in today's society play. Now, I don't mean to downplay anyone pain or hurt uh, from uh, a broken childhood or uh, circumstances that we grow up through, but uh, please understand that this is not how Esther chose to identify herself. Uh, Instead, uh, rather, she could have also hung her hat on her beauty. The Bible says that she was fair and beautiful, fair and beautiful. Now, we're going to see why she was all of these things here in a minute. All of these things fit perfectly into the plan of God for Esther's life. Uh, But she was a beautiful woman. Now, there are a lot of really, really good-looking people in this world. There are good-looking, women tell me, I don't believe this, but women tell me there are good-looking men. I've never seen a good-looking man ever in my life. Amen? To me, all men are ugly. But uh, some women say that there are good-looking men, and uh, good-looking men maybe that act in Hollywood or are big movie or music stars. And no doubt there are plenty of good-looking women in this world. I'm married to the prettiest of all of them. Amen? I have to say that. I was paid to... No, I'm teasing. I really do believe that. But um, uh, there are a lot of really, really good-looking women in this world, and some women hang their hat on their beauty, the beauty that they were born with and they were given by God, and they emphasize that. And you know what? That is a vain, vain, vain way to live. The truth is beauty depreciates over time. I heard someone say one time that beauty is skin deep, but ugly goes all the way to the bone. Amen? All the way to the bone. You can be ugly deep, deep, deep down inside, even if God gives you a a pretty face or a pretty body. So she could have hung her hat on being a victim. She could have hung her hat, her identity hat on being beautiful. Uh, She had the option of hanging her hat on being a Jew. And that would mean that she would emphasize being one of God's chosen people. But later on in her life, there was something else she could hang her identity on. Look down to verse number 17. Verse number 17. We're skipping ahead in the story a little bit. I'll fill you in on the details here in a moment. The Bible says, And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen. Notice that phrase. Made her queen instead of Vashti. Verse 17 goes on to say, Then the king made a great feast unto all the princes and servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And so she could have now hung her identity on being the queen of the most powerful country in the world. Esther, the little orphan girl, 
Talk about a rags-to-riches story. Talking about a Cinderella-type story. Esther goes from being an orphan girl, a slave orphan girl, to being queen of Persia. Queen of Persia. But Esther never forgot who she truly was. She was a child of the nation of Israel. She was one of God's chosen people. And although uh, she had come a long ways to become queen of Persia, she never forgot her true identity, and that was in her God. You know, Christian, there are many ways that you may be able to identify yourself, but at the end of the day, you should care most about the title of Christian. Of Christian. That Title should mean more to you than anything else. I am a father. I am a husband. I am a pastor. I am a citizen of the United States of America. Uh, There are a lot of things I am. There are a lot of ways I could identify myself. But before all of those things, before any of those identities, I am to embrace the idea that Jesus loved me and He died for me on the cross and He gave up His life to purchase my soul and make me His child. I am a child of God. I am a a, a resident of heaven. I am a citizen of heaven. And that is where I, you and I are to find our identity in Christ. And so we see here uh, her, her, her principles. She never forgot who she was, a child of God. Letter A, her identity. Letter B, notice her likability. Her likability. We won't dwell here long. But... Here, Esther is gathered up and brought to this place where for a year she's going to be bathed in perfumes. And six months in one type of perfume and six months in another type of perfume. And uh, they're being bathed and prepared uh, to be presented to the king. And we see here that she's turned over to a man who is a eunuch or a keeper of the house of women that's being prepared. And we see her, the spirit she has about her. Look at verse number 8 of chapter 2. The Bible says, So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace to the custody of Hegai that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Hegai keeper of the women and the maiden pleased him and she obtained kindness of him notice here Esther's spirit is not one of bitterness or anger or wrath or frustration, Esther uh, instead looked her circumstances in the eye and said, I'm going to make the best of it, and I'm going to have the best spirit about it. She didn't come in with a cold heart. She didn't come in with a cold attitude. She didn't come in and hide in the corner or run from what she had to do. She came in with a great heart, a great spirit, a great attitude, and immediately obtained kindness of the man in charge of these women. Uh, the verse goes on to say, and he speedily gave her her things of purification, which such such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to give her out of the king's house, and he preferred her and her maids under the best place of the house of the women. You see, when you go through life with a positive, upbeat spirit, you go through life with a happy, uh, joyous spirit, generally people just treat you better. When you go through life with a, uh, a cranky attitude, you're a pessimist, you go through life cold-hearted and you won't look anyone in the eye and you won't be kind and you won't follow the biblical attributes of graciousness and kindness and mercy and, and deference and compassion. Boy, when you refuse those things, 
You don't get put in the preferred part of the house. No, instead you get stuck over here in the corner and just about forgotten about. Life moves on without you and people prefer folks who have a kind spirit. Uh, What were her principles? Her principles were I know who I am in the Lord and I know the behavior I'm supposed to exhibit. I'm going to love God and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Do you see her principles being played out here? And uh, listen, she spent time there. God is, and, and, and she did her best to be kind. Christian, God has called us to have a spirit of kindness. Truth be told, our positions as Christians are divisive enough. The last thing we need to have is a divisive, unkind spirit. Christians should be the kindest people in the entire world. People ought to say, you know what, that man or that woman at work, there's just something different about them. And people say, yeah, you know why? They're a Christian. Oh, that's the hardest working person here at, on the job. Uh, that, that's the person who never really seems to get uh, uh, his or her feathers ruffled. Uh, that person there, uh, I'd never hear them talking bad about their spouse. I'd never hear them uh, say a word, an unkind word about the boss. Uh, they're just upbeat and they're positive and they're happy and they're joyous. What is different about him? What is different about her? Oh, they're a Christian. They're a Christian. Ah, that explains a lot. That explains a lot. Christians get a bad rap as being hateful or intolerant toward people who don't see the world the way we do. And oftentimes that reputation is earned because we don't treat people right. And the Christians that attend this church, the Christians who watch this live stream, the Christians who um, are part of a White Oak Baptist Church in some form or another, we ought to go out into this community at large and show the world the same spirit that Esther showed uh, this uh, this eunuch, this uh, chamberlain who oversaw the women. Uh, he, he, she had a spirit of likability. Do you have a likable spirit? Someone asks you how you're doing. You know, you don't have to lie, but you don't always have to uh, uh, unload the wagon on it, right? Someone asks you how they're doing, how you're doing, and then they think to themselves about halfway through your response, I'll never make this mistake again. I'm never going to ask her or him again how they're doing, right? Uh, listen, uh, there are ways you can phrase that. There are ways you can put that where you don't have to lie if you're going through a hard time, but you can still be gracious and kind. We see Esther's principles. Number two, notice Esther's persecution. Esther's persecution. Hey, listen, Esther's promoted to queen, and uh, she is brought in before the king and spends the night with the king, and the king sees her and falls in love with her and stops the search Uh, and says, I don't need to see any more women. I have met the love of my life. It was love at first sight for King Ahasuerus. And he took uh, Esther and he made her queen of the entire country. And so Esther is given this role and given this spot and promoted and uh, given uh, uh, no doubt an office and living quarters and all of the things that come along with being uh, the queen of the most powerful country of the world. And for a time, for a time, there was a honeymoon period, not only with her new husband, but also with her new role. But trouble was brewing in the background. Letter A, notice Mordecai's stand. Mordecai's stand. Now we said that Mordecai was her uncle. 
And as the story goes, Mordecai was taken captive or a slave by the Babylonian Empire. And Esther, her parents were probably killed in that raid. And so uh, Hadassah or Esther was taken by Mordecai into captivity and she was raised by her uncle. Well, now her uncle must be very proud because his niece is now the queen of the entire Persian Empire. And so he very much loved his uh, niece and he hovered around the palace and was around uh, the palace. And one important detail to make sure I include here is that one day while he's standing around the palace, two of the guards of the palace were talking about killing the king. And Mordecai overheard the conversation. So he communicates that to someone and it gets back uh, to the king and the king orders to have these two men killed for treason. And it's written down in the book of Chronicles and then it's forgotten about. And so Mordecai is hovering around the palace and hearing of things and uh, there's another man named Haman and Haman was the king's right-hand man. This is his personal assistant. Uh, this is a, a man who's gathered a lot, garnered a lot of power out of the king and Haman would become a thorn in the flesh to Mordecai and Mordecai would become a thorn in the flesh to Haman. They would butt heads. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 3. The Bible says, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of... Let's see, how do you say that? Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set the seat above all the princes that were with him. And so he's put in the, basically, uh, the, 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 the seat right below the king. Haman's promoted. Look at verse 2. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servant, servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? And so Haman is your classic narcissist. I mean, this man is full of himself. And he uh, uh, works his way up. He kisses up to the king. And he becomes the second most powerful man in the kingdom. And now when he leaves the palace, everyone who's there, when Haman leaves the palace, is required to get down on their knees and bow to Mordecai. And rather to Haman. And Mordecai rolls his eyes and says, Oh, brother, I am not bowing to a man. I don't care who he is. And so Haman comes out and Mordecai just stands there. And everyone else bows and Mordecai just stands there. And boy, that makes Haman's blood boil. How dare this man not bow to me? How dare this man transgress the king's commandment? Listen, this was so intense that Haman had even gotten the king to write a decree that everyone had to bow before Haman. How full of yourself do you have to be to get people to bow before you when you walk into their presence? But Mordecai refused to do it, and Haman didn't like it. Mordecai took a stand. You can say, well, come on, Mordecai. What's the big deal? Just take a knee. Just bow. Listen, you can bow on the outside and not bow on the inside. You can go through the formality of it. Don't create waves. Don't create problems. But Mordecai had some principles of his own, and he said, I'm not going to bow before a man. I just don't care. I'm not going to do it. Letter B, we see Haman's scorn. 
Haman's scorn. It wasn't good enough uh, for uh, Haman that he just kind of uh, felt angry and upset by it. No, he decided to take action. And boy, his action he decided to take was intense and over the top. Look at verse number 5 of Esther 3. The Bible says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn, scorn, to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai, uh, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. So... Mordecai refuses to bow, and instead of Haman just saying, we're going to have uh, Mordecai eliminated, no, Haman does some research and finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. And he says, we're not just going to have Mordecai eliminated, we're going to have all of the Jews eliminated. What? One man doesn't bow, and you're going to have his entire people exterminated off the planet? Yep, that was Haman's plan. Boy, he was over... Overkill, over the top. I have to have all of the people gone. And so he goes to work and devises an evil plan, uses his influence with the king, and even offers to pay out of his own pocket for the process of having the Jews eliminated. Look down at verse number 8. The Bible says, And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people, look how vague he is here, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them or to allow them to stay alive. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of, of, of that guy, the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. So he says to the king, let's have these unruly people destroyed. He refuses to name the people. He just he just uh, uh, broadly uh, or just generically uh, uh, names them, generically describes them, and he says, hey, listen, king, I'll take care of this for you, and it won't even cost you a penny. I'll pay for it out of my own pocket. All these people should be destroyed. And the king takes his ring off his finger that was used as a stamp at the bottom of a decree, and he gives it to Haman and says, basically like signing a blank check, have your way, do what you will. Now there's one problem here, folks. Esther is a Jew. Esther is a Jew. You say, well, where is Esther's persecution found anywhere in here? By the way, let's look at verse 13 as well. Look at verse 13, uh, chapter 3. And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even unto the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them, for a prey. Now, Esther has kept it quiet that she's a Jew. Ahasuerus doesn't know. Most folks don't know. She's kept this quiet. But nonetheless, when her people are threatened, she is threatened. Now, I want to pull out one application before we move on. 
Sometimes the behavior of other Christians brings persecution our direction. Sometimes that behavior is justified and sometimes it is not. How many of you have seen these folks that stand outside of uh, funerals of military, uh, uh, military people and they are belligerent and they protest and they call themselves Baptist? You know what? They are bringing unnecessary persecution to Christians. That's not right. But how about a Christian who refuses to bake a cake for someone who is homosexual because they don't want to violate their own conscience? Don't they have that right to send someone down the road? By the way, I find it interesting that Muslim bakeries can refuse anyone they want and they get a pass. Totally get a pass from the media, totally get a pass from the government. Muslim bakeries can refuse anyone they want, but Christian bakeries can't. I call that discrimination, by the way. Christian bakery can be as kind about it as they want, and nonetheless, nonetheless, they're sued and taken to court, and, and they're totally destroyed, and Christians are given a bad name uh, for this very thing. You know what? Sometimes you can be as kind and caring and sweet, just like Esther was, and someone else's actions and behavior ends up bringing persecution your direction, but all the same, we are to take a stand. Number one, we see Esther's principles. Number two, Esther's persecution. Number three, notice Esther's passion. Esther's passion. So as this decree is being read all throughout the 147 provinces from Ethiopia uh, to India, all 147 provinces where these Jews live, uh, there is all sorts of mourning going on. And Mordecai puts on the clothing of a mourner and he sits right outside of the gate of the palace. I don't know if Mordecai really knew why this was happening. I would venture to guess he probably had a pretty good idea, right? That uh, all the Jews are being destroyed and Haman uh, was upset with him because he refused to bow. And so word gets back to Esther that her uncle is sitting outside the palace gate and he's wearing these clothes of a mourner, and he's sad, and he's upset. And so she sends out a new change of clothes for him, and he refuses to put it on. Esther has no idea what's going on. She's protected inside her little bubble there in the palace. And so a conversation takes place in writing form. A, a carrier, a messenger, is carrying this back and forth, and they're writing to each other back and forth. And Mordecai lays out for Esther exactly what's going to happen to the people. Notice letter A, her understanding, her understanding. Look at verse number 13 of Esther chapter 4. Uh, Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, and look at verse number 13. The Bible says, Then Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai, commanded to answer uh, his niece Esther, Think not um, with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace, if you don't say anything at this time, look here, then shall their enlargement, the Jews' enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Hey, Esther, if you don't speak up and say something, if you don't use your position and power to step in and do something, hey, the Jews will not be destroyed. Deliverance will come from somewhere else. But look what it says. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knowest whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time 
as this. He says here, hey, listen, if you don't speak up and say something, Israel will be saved, but you will be destroyed. Who knows, Esther, maybe, just maybe, you were put in the palace for such a time as this. What was it that Hadassah or Esther understood? Watch this now. This is powerful. Esther must have had an epiphany where she realized the beauty that I have, the graceful spirit that comes natural to me, the position of power that I've obtained, the Jewish heritage that I was born into. God gave me all of it so I could be in this moment right here and right now so I can accomplish something for God. He has given me a purpose and I now know what it is. Some of you may look in the mirror and think that you look really good. Some of you may look in the mirror and think you don't look so good. All right? Um, some of you may think that, boy, I love my personality and God's given me a great personality and I love my personality. Others of you here may be very insecure in the personality that you have. Some of you here may be very confident in your, um, your heritage, the home you grew up in and the family that you have. And some of you have a great relationship with mom and dad. Others of you here have no relationship with mom and dad. And some of you are very insecure in your upbringing and you, you're very insecure in those things. Can I tell you that whatever the circumstances are about you, whether you're insecure about a big nose or not having a dad in your life or a mom in your life, uh, whether you are insecure uh, about, or you may be very secure in who you are and what you have, whatever your circumstances are, God gave you those circumstances on purpose and it's all going to come together at some point in your life for such a time as this. Oh, I don't know when that moment will be for you. I don't know when it will be for you, but I know this. Esther understood. God did not give me my looks so I would be vain. God did not give me a graceful spirit so I would feel better than everyone else. God did not make me a Jew just so I could brag about being one of God's chosen people. No, God did not put me in this position as queen just so I could be uh, high and lifted up of my own self. No, God gave me all these things because a persecution was coming to His people and He put me here in this place for such a time as this. Her understanding. Her understanding. But you know what? For her to understand why she was where she was was not enough. Notice letter B, her utterance. She spoke up and said something even when it wasn't safe. Now in a minute we're going to look at verses 15 and 16. But before I read those, I want you to understand something. It didn't work back then the way it works now. You see, King Ahasuerus was a powerful, powerful man. And if anyone walked into the king's throne room uninvited, he could have them killed instantly. Including the queen. In fact, it had been 30 days since the queen had seen the king. Now, I don't know why that would be. They were married. They were husband and wife. I wouldn't want to go 30 days without seeing my wife. But he was a busy man. He was overseeing a kingdom of 147 provinces that stretched from Ethiopia all the way to India. And for one reason or another, he had not seen his wife. 
And so for Esther to walk in unannounced, if the king happened to be in a bad mood, he had already booted Vashti. What was keeping him from having her booted as well, or even killed? And so for her to walk into his presence was a great risk. For her to say something against the second most powerful man in the kingdom was a great risk. Look at verse 15. What does she do with her understanding of who she is? Her passion drives her to action. Look at verse 15. Then Esther bade them return. Mordecai this answer, Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither uh, eat nor drink three days, night or day. I, also my maidens, will fast likewise. So will I go in unto the king, look here, which is not according to the law. I will have to break the law to walk in his presence. And look here what she says. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. She said, I'm going to go in and try to do something about this. And if it costs me my life, then it costs me my life. She said here, I'm going to take a stand, even if it means that I'm going to have to die. Esther was so passionate about protecting her people and her Jewish heritage that she said, no matter if it costs me my life, I will take a stand. For her to stand, for her to say something, would require great risk and trust in God to protect her. Now, listen, we know, uh, if you've been going to church any length of time and you've read this book, you know the end of the story. But we have to always stop and remember that when Noah was building the boat, the flood had not yet happened. Right? So for him to wake up every morning for 120 years and build that boat required a lot of faith. Required a lot of overcoming, you know, second thoughts and doubts. We know the story how it's going to end. But Esther did not know the story. And so, in Esther's mind, all sorts of thoughts had to have been rattling around. Can I tell you what I think one of the thoughts probably was? This Haman guy, boy, the king really likes him. I wonder if the king would prefer Haman over me. I wonder if I'm more dispensable than Haman is. I wonder if I go in and say something about Haman, if that would cost me my life, and he would prefer Haman over me. Can't you see why she would have thought that? Can't you see why this would have been a struggle? But she said, if I perish, I perish. You know what I call this? I call this standing with conviction. I call this a woman who said, I have some convictions, some morals about me. I have some principles that mean more to me than even my life. And if taking a stand requires me to die, then I'm going to take a stand. Boy, that's standing with passion right there. Esther's principles, her persecution. Esther's passion. Notice number four, Esther's prudence. Esther's prudence. We said a couple of weeks ago that prudence is wisdom put into action. Esther did not just storm into the throne room and start making demands. Instead, she went in with a plan. Letter A, quickly, notice her request. Her request. For those of you wondering, I just looked out the window. It's not snowing yet, so we're good. Amen? All right. I know everyone's like, oh, Pastor, hurry up. We've got to get home. The roads are going to be messy. It's not snowing. I can preach for another hour. No, I'm just teasing. All right, her request. Um, uh, so uh, Esther is going to make some requests here. Notice below that uh, her request of God's people. 
her request of God's people. Uh, 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 chapter 4, look at verse number 16. The Bible says, Go, gather uh, together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Look at verse 17. So Mordecai went his way, and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So Shushan was a, a city right outside of town and where many Jews lived. It would have been a, a Jewish community. And um, uh, Mordecai goes to this Jewish community and he says, Okay, folks, here's the plan. While there's a date on the calendar where uh, our enemies are going to be allowed to overtake us and kill us, the queen is going to go in and try to say something to the king uninvited, and we need to pray that he doesn't order to have her head lopped off. And so uh, three days and three nights let us fast. Now, again, the word prayer is not mentioned here, but it's definitely implied that for three days and three nights they would not eat. Instead, they would pray to their God and ask God uh, to help her. And uh, Esther would do the same thing. And after three days and three nights, we see that Esther would make her entrance in before the king. So we see her request of God's people, and then we, we see her request of the king. Look at chapter 5, and look at verse number 1. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon the royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. Can you feel the tension building? Esther's preparing to walk in through the door. The king's there. She's going to walk in, and the king's got to make a decision. Now, before I read the story here, if the king held out his scepter and you came up and touched it, that meant your life was spared. But if the king did not reach out that scepter, then the guards would carry you away and kill you, okay? So she's going to walk in, and is the king going to extend that or not? Look at verse 2. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen... Standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, and I imagine he's looking at her with love in his eyes, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. Wow. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, I have found favor in the sight of the king. And if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. Now, I just have to humorously say here, I'm glad to see that women have not changed, going all the way back to thousands of years. Here the king says to her, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom, just tell me. And Esther, right on cue, refused to give her husband a straight answer. Amen? I want you to come to a banquet I have prepared. 
And so the king shows up with his right-hand man, his right-hand man, Haman. And they show up, and the king's, you know, eating and enjoying the banquet. And he says to her, all right, Esther, what do you want up to half the kingdom? And she doesn't give him a straight answer again. She says, I want you to come to a banquet again tomorrow, and then I will tell you. Well, I don't have this in my sermon, per se, but I'll just quickly add the funniest part of the book here to the message. And it's what happens to Haman. So Haman just continues to just hate Mordecai. I mean, he's going in and out of the palace, and Mordecai refuses to bow. And every time Mordecai refuses to bow, it just makes him. I mean, his blood's boiling. He's in a temperous rage. And so he goes home, and he's just stewing and venting to his wife and his children about how much he just can't stand Mordecai. And his wife says, well, why don't you just build some gallows, and why don't you go in and ask the king if you can just have Mordecai hung? I'm sure he'd let you do that. And he says to his wife, he says, you know what? That's a great idea. Build the gallows. So the gallows get built for uh, Mordecai to be hung. And so the gallows get built that evening, and Mordecai thinks to himself, I'm going to go ask the king right now. Why wait? He's all excited. He wants to see Mordecai you know, swing on the gallows, and Haman's filled with himself. And so he heads to the palace to see if he can't get an audience with the king. Well, lo and behold, that night the king could not sleep. This is funny. Okay? When I read this in the Bible, it makes me laugh every time. The king cannot sleep. So he calls in his men to read the chronicles of the king, the events that have taken place in the kingdom. And so the king gets the, uh, the, the they get the books and they're reading. You know, have you ever had like boring reading going on in the background to help put you to sleep? I believe that's what's trying to happen here. And so uh, events are being read. And lo and behold, the event where Mordecai saved the king's life is read. And the king sits up in his bed and he says, well, what did we ever do to award Mordecai? And the men say, well, nothing. And he says, who's out there in the, in the courtyard? And they look and they say, it's Haman. Well, tell Haman to come in here. And so Haman comes into the king's uh, bedroom there where the king's in bed. And the king says uh, to uh, Haman, he says, what should be done unto the man in whom the king delighted? And the Bible says that Haman thought within himself, he's got to be talking about me. And so Haman says, you should put the royal robe on his back. And you should put the crown on his head. And you should put him on the finest divine kingly stallion. And you should have him paraded through the streets. And you should have announced to everyone that this is the man in whom the king delighteth. And now remember... uh, Uh, Haman's there to ask the king to have Mordecai killed. And the king looks at Haman and he says, that's a great idea, Haman. I want you to do that for Mordecai right now. (laughs) Poetic justice. And so um, he goes home and gets some sleep. He comes back and he puts the royal robe on his enemy and he puts the crown on his head and he spends the whole day walking him through the street saying, this is the man in whom the king delighteth. And oh, it just eats him alive. And he goes home and he says to his wife, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And she consoles him and says, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, Don't worry, the day's going to come where the Jews die and we will make sure he, he swings on the gallows. And while he's complaining to his wife, the king's men come to get him for the banquet, the second banquet. And so Haman is hastened into the banquet with the king and Esther, and then let her be, we see, the plot 
revealed, the plot revealed. Look at chapter 7, and here's where the whole story comes to a head. Look at chapter 7. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Now picture this in your mind's eye. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. I imagine Haman's heart begins to beat in his chest right here. He did not know Esther was a Jew. But if we have been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not counter uh, avail the king's damage. And then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto the queen, who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. Can you picture that? Hey, oh, 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 the queen is a Jew? What? Let her see. We see the king's response. The king's response. Look down at verse number 7. And the king arising from the banquet of wine and his wrath went into the palace garden. So the king is just, you know, beside himself angry and he gets up and he leaves the room almost like I have to control myself before I take Haman and just throw him against the wall. So he storms out and he leaves the room and Haman stood up to make request for his life to, es- answer, uh, to, to Esther the queen for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. They would have been laying on like a couch chair. And so that's where Esther was. He fell on top of her bed trying to plead for his own life. Uh, Then said the king, will he force, will he rape the queen also before me in the house? And the word went out of the king's mouth. They covered Haman's face. So guards come in and grab Haman. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said unto the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. This is true poetic justice. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Esther was prudent in her approach. She didn't just walk into the palace and say, hey, my life's in danger because of your man. She was very careful in how she went about taking her stand. Prudence is a big deal in standing with conviction. And listen, uh, uh, um, Esther took the time to take a stand in a way that was graceful and tasteful, but all the same, she took a stand and she stood with conviction. Now, we don't have time to cover the rest of the book. It's time to go. But let me just quickly recap the rest of the book very quickly here. Mordecai would be promoted into Haman's position. Haman's sons would be hung on gallows. A new law would be passed allowing the Jews to gather together and defend themselves as well as destroy their own enemies. And that would take place. Many, many folks, the Bible says, would convert to Judaism and believe in the God of the Bible. All because Esther took a stand. 
All because Esther stood with conviction. I end the sermon this morning the way I began it. Open up your eyes, people. The culture around us is filled with sin and godlessness. It's time for Christians to find their identity in Christ. It's time for Christians to stand up for Christ and stand with conviction. Hey, again, everything about who you are, God gave it to you on purpose. And He wants you to use that for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Will you have the attitude of Esther that says, I'm going to stand for what's right no matter what it costs me, and if I perish, I perish. Boy, Jesus died for you. He's calling you to live for Him. How about it this morning? Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Lord, we are grateful for a Bible that is perfect in every way. We are grateful for stories that share with us experiences of others who took a stand. Now, Lord, for Esther it turned out great, but not for everyone who's taken a stand has it turned out so great. Help us not to be focused on the results, but on the action. Lord, that story could have gone different and you could have allowed Esther to perish. She still would have been right in her stand. Lord, my prayer this morning is that every single one of us will not identify ourselves by anything other than you. First and foremost, beyond everything else, our identity will be found in Christ. So Lord, be with us this this morning. And help us to commit to follow the pattern that Esther laid out in Scripture. Thank you for this godly woman who lived a godly life. Lord, may we be encouraged by it in Jesus' name. With our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, every head bowed, every eye closed, how many of you would say, Pastor, this story has inspired me. I want to go and live for Jesus. Pastor, pray for me that I will take a stand. I will stand with conviction. No matter the cost, I'll stand with conviction. If that's you, would you hold up your hand? I'll stand with conviction. Pastor, pray for me that no matter the cost, Lord, help us this morning to make decisions for you. In Jesus' name.